0: Visit ADHDessentials.com for more details. What's up, team? I have some news. I was recently invited to serve as the interim principal at one of the private schools I consult with. They were even kind enough to let me arrange my schedule around the work I do with my ADHD Essentials business. So, since these kinds of opportunities don't come along every day, I accepted. As a result, Jeffrey Gordon of ideal video strategies will be doing the heavy lifting on episode editing from here on out. I'll do my best to fine tune things as time permits, but he'll be doing most of the work. And again, I'm still doing the ADHD essentials coaching and consulting work. In fact, the next parent groups will launch this summer. And I plan on launching a group on climbing the wall of awful sometime between now and then. So stay tuned. To learn more about Jeff, Go to idealvideostrategies.com, and to join the ADHD Essentials Facebook community, go to facebook.com slash groups slash ADHD Essentials Community. You'll find all sorts of great resources there, and it's a good way to connect with me. This is episode 60. Today, we're talking to Kimberly Berry of being unnormal. This episode has some hard parts. I'm not going to lie to you. Kimberly Berry tells the tale of her struggles to get her daughter the help she needed after her ADHD and other mental health challenges led to a child in crisis. Although it ends well, part of Kimberly's story includes her 10-year-old daughter's suicide attempts. Luckily, medication, parental skill building, and good mental health care, as you'll hear, have made a world of difference for them both. I should note, that while Kimberly focuses on her daughter's ADHD, her daughter also has a mood disorder diagnosis. And that certainly played a role in the crises they faced. I'll include some resources for what to do if your child is in crisis in the show notes, but it can vary pretty significantly state to state. And if you're outside of the United States, I'm sure it varies just as much internationally. So there's a limit to how much of a resource I can provide to you. So I recommend that you do the research yourself and get ahead of it. Better to know what to do and never have to use that information than to not know what to do and wish you did. All right, let's get rolling.
1: Thank you for having me on your show. I'm really excited. My name is Kimberly Berry. I am the founder of Being Unnormal. And that is a um, coaching and advocacy group. And I do have a weekly podcast. And that was really a result in a birth of my experiences being a parent of children with various mental health diagnoses and one of that being ADHD. And the journey with myself and my daughter who has ADHD uh, was complex and painful and all the things that I think parents that have a child with ADHD experience. Um, It's not a linear road, it's not um, a one-size-fits-all experience, but there are some commonalities that all of us go through in you know how to manage the symptoms in our children that are dealing with this diagnosis. And so it's one of those things where I, you know, as I came, as I rolled into that, um, and, and how that diagnosis came to be and that path and journey really kind of led me to want to create something, uh, bigger than myself because I know it was a really painful road for myself and my family. And I knew others were going through the same thing. And I thought, you know, if I am not the only one, so let's, you know, I, Let's, let's talk about it. Let's start having these conversations. And I think ADHD is really misunderstood, even in the professional realms. And I say professional as an educational or therapeutical realms. There's still so much, so much misinformation and misguidedness yeah. that goes yeah. along with it, right? So as a parent who has to advocate, uh, not only for my own child, but, you know, helping other parents now advocate for their children. It, it can be really, really sticky. I think ADHD is one of those diagnoses that, you know, is this blanket terminology. For example, today I was reading this article about ADHD and how a uh, Texas school has worked against ADHD because they tripled recess time. And I was like, wow, so you're telling me the cure to my child's ADHD is just to tell her to go outside and play. And it, it simplifies this diagnosis. And, and that's what's portrayed in the media and i'm thinking wow well if that was the solution to my problem i could have like i'll just have my kid play outside and i won't have any headaches anymore so it's all those misconceptions about what adhd is and how that made things a lot more challenging for me and and ultimately my daughter and our relationship because of having to jump through hurdles not only portrayed by the media and effect that has on on the professional scope, but myself as a a mother trying to navigate what was real and what wasn't.
0: Those articles that sort of simplify things drive me crazy a little bit because (laughs) they're all about the how, sort of. They're like, this is how you fix this thing, right? But they don't go into the why that worked or the fact that you can't fix that thing. Like, that's not really what happened.
1: Well yeah, it's it's the same thing as like disciplining ADHD. I was um I was recently in this um thread, online thread, and you know, they were like, you know, spanking a child with ADHD. And I was like, Well, you can't you can't spank the ADHD out of a child, right? You know, the discipline and punishment is about trying to alter behavior and incur behavior and I'm someone that has tried everything. I'm you know, definitely not parent shaming, but again, that blanket terminology where it's like, Well, if it was that easy don't you think I would have? And my child is very active. So it's kind of like, well, she already plays outside and she was in sports and, you know, I may have tried to spank her and none of that works. So maybe we need to have a different conversation of what ADHD is in the brain and the neuroscience behind that. And to really understand that and have articles about what that means and how it impacts daily function versus more recess time, which I am a fan of more recess time, don't get me wrong, but not as a um, cure-all to ADHD. Right. Yeah,
0: when I, when I do my workshops, I start with the why, and half the time I don't even get to the how. There's hows sprinkled throughout my workshops, but like the end of it is just how after how after how, but none of that matters if you don't understand the why.
1: Exactly.
0: Depending on my audience, Parents usually feel like they're seen and heard in a way, and their kids that are seen and heard in a way that they've never experienced before. People leave laughing and crying and thanking me and all that kind of stuff. Teachers, I push the house a little bit more because they really want the house, and some of them care less about the whys, and, which speaks to the misunderstanding stuff you talked about. Um, and some of them really want the whys. Some of them are really interested in that. But my most effective teacher training is six hours long.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the hows are important, right? Because I know for me personally, you know, we, we finally got her ADHD diagnosis from um, a neuropsych eval. We went through, you know, six hours of testing, did the whole thing. Not to say that she didn't have symptoms before, but her therapist at the time said that she wasn't clinically presenting in session. So it was very frustrating, and um, she, I finally was able to get a um, referral to the med provider because you know i was I was cert- i I had two feelings about it. number one, it was ADHD and there had been many conversations I had with other mental professionals who'd been in my home and were like, yeah, you don't have that ADHD diagnosis yet I'm like, no, but then she also had some mood disorder symptoms arising as well, so so many symptoms can overlap diagnoses, as we know, or co-occur. So it really was tricky. Was this a chicken or egg situation? And come to find out, the long story short, at the end of the neuropsych, it was both the chicken and the egg. There is a mood disorder and there is ADHD. But when we're going through the process, we got the referral to the psych nurse because we, you know, at this time, her behavior was so escalated. It was out of control daily major escalations that were violent and they were physical and they were disruptive and school was it so we have all of this happening in the home and we go to the psych nurse and it was after a two and a half hour escalation where i had to restrain her i mean we both were completely emotionally exhausted and you know something is so wrong something is wrong i have experience i have an older child who has mental illness i know this is not Um, neurotypical behavior. You know, it's, this is not my first rodeo. And uh, her response was to call my child a criminal, told her that she created, or she had an act of assault, that she knows really bad children. My child was not a bad children, did not have a mental health diagnosis. And if I, if she assaulted me again, that I was to call the police. And that was her reaction to my 10 year old at the time. Um, telling my ten-year-old that she was a criminal.
0: Now we've talked before, and I know there's a really important detail in here that that you've left out, probably inadvertently.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, and, and the thing was, you know, going through that, it was my. Re- I think you're talking about my reaction to her.
0: No, I'm talking about the fact. Isn't your daughter African American?
1: Yes, she is, and that was my reaction to the psych nurse. You know, my my child is is mixed, is mixed race, and she's African American, and um, and I have very mixed feelings about engaging law enforcement in a mental health crisis because i have very interesting views on you know who should be first responders to mental health behavior i don't think it could be the criminal justice system but in this country it is right it is what it is and, and if i have to call the police i will right. but um, at the time i did not want to engage the police and have my child maybe accidentally assault an officer because she's in this disruptive state and not thinking clearly, right? Because when you have ADHD, you don't forward think, you know, you can't, you can't fully process. And so um, as a protective measure, I did what I needed to do. So she tells me this and she tells my daughter, you know, essentially, she's a criminal, I'm shaking, I'm so mad at this point. And I looked at her and I said, so you're telling me, That my daughter, who was having a mental health crisis and was having escalated behavior of my child of color, that I am to call law enforcement to engage and help in these escalations. And that's and that's how we're going to handle this. I mean, essentially. And she was, you know, put put it back like, oh, I didn't think of it that way. But, But essentially what she was doing is call the police on your black child. Um, I'm not giving her a mental diagnosis. And so when we finally went through the evaluation process and we finally got new therapists because never seeing that lady again.
0: Yeah. And, and recognizing that you might not want to speculate about the racism of that mental health nurse. I will, cause that's unacceptable. That's not, that's not a thing that should happen. And I'm all bet dollars a donuts that if you brought in a child who was white, that's not what would have happened.
1: It was unacceptable. And, you know, it's one of those situations where I think it's um, it's where privilege comes into play and experience comes into play. And I don't think that that particular psychiatric nurse had the experience dealing with children in a mental health crisis state. And at my at that time, my child was in a crisis state. Mm-hmm. It wasn't that she was having just some mental health behavioral health issues. The agency is a what's called a level one to three provider, right? Which is more of the you know, mild to moderate mental health symptoms, right? We have these classification systems. And then when they go into crisis or residential care, they go up to level four and five here in the state of Washington, at least. And so this agency was a level one to three provider, which meant they dealt with mild to moderate symptoms. And my child was at a severe level So number one, I think it was an incredible amount of inexperience. Number two, I think it was definitely um, a privileged thing for her to say because when you don't have those experiences or background or that diversity in your life, you don't think beyond your own experience. Right. My guess is that she doesn't have a lot of people of color in her life. So yeah, it was just a, a really crazy experience. And unfortunately for her, there was a supervisor in the room when she said this. So when I said "whoa," um, it was heard, and um, and there was there was some consequences. But those are their challenges that particularly ADHD kiddos are going through. Through I think in the diagnosis process, because of this portrayal of they have to be bouncing off the walls and running around crazy like, and you know all you know super excited, and, and those are the only symptoms of ADHD. What people don't understand is when you go through the when you go through the testing process, there's so much more. There's, you know, how, how do you visually process? How do you auditorily process? How is your memory function? You know, how do you retain information? There's so much more depth to the diagnosis. I didn't know that there was a combined type, which was my daughter's diagnosis. I didn't know there was a uncombined type right i mean and so what i have learned through my journey and in my own education was um how complex this is in the brain and what's really happening at, from a neurocognitive level and that's not what's talked about and that it causes processing delays and other fun stuff like you said you know uh, it's amazing to me it, it's it, but it's been an eye-opener once we got that diagnosis oh my gosh it was a game changer the cool thing was, they, and we were talking about the how-to, they printed out a packet of interventions specifically tailored to where my child's test scores were at. So if she, And we found out, for instance, that she has visual processing issues. So what I was doing in my house was putting up a bunch of visual cues, you know, oh, here's a chore chart, and here's a star chart, and here's all this stuff, all these visual cues for her. Mm-hmm. Here's a stop sign with halt on it, you know to pick up on. But if she doesn't process those quickly or she processes them differently or not as comprehensively, all my work was for nothing. And now I know I have to take her to those cues. I have to talk to her about what I'm putting up on the board. I have to show her or I have to engage her in that. She has to do it. So for instance, she had to write a morning routine chart I'm, you know, I made her do it. I didn't do like here. You, this is your checklist in the morning. She wrote down her morning routine, so she's kinesthetically activated. You know, we talked about it, she's auditorily active. So giving her more opportunities for success. Once I knew that, it was a game changer. Once I got that packet read through it, I, and I started implementing those strategies, there was an immediate change. If I wouldn't have fought so hard and advocated for so hard to get that referral, get out to the neuropsych. I can't even imagine where we would be at.
0: Now, are you fighting with the school system or are you battling with someone else?
1: This is all through the, the medical model system. So, I mean, so for us to get a referral to the, the neuropsych, it all stems from the PCP. But usually a PCP has to be justified, talk, and, and there have to get the, the okay from the, be, you know, the behavioral health specialist or whatever medical um, or, excuse me, mental health provider is in play your insurance is the biggest, the biggest thing, whatever insurance you have is really going to dictate how that, how that referral system is navigated. Eventually, and it took four months, but eventually we were able to navigate that. Now we used a loophole because she had had a concussion and we were able to use that to expedite that. So um, I was really satisfied with that, but they're not easy to come by. I mean, and and that's the sad part because if, I could have, you know, I mean, unfortunately my daughter had two suicide attempts last or well, this year, it's still this year. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, that's where we, we got to the point that my daughter was such a wreck and so escalated and unmedicated and drowning. And how 10 years old.
0: 10 years old. Okay.
1: So, I mean, it, it was that bad before I was able to get the help I needed. Mm-hmm. And, and, and she just kept feeling like this massive failure. Mommy, I don't know why I can't be quiet. Mommy, I don't know why I did. Her impulsivity was so out of control. She, you know, she's like, I can't stop myself from, you know, throwing something across the room. And she couldn't understand her own behavior. She felt like a stranger in her own body and she didn't understand her brain. Mm -hmm. And it was so hard to watch her go through that, but then also be emotionally exhausted as a parent going through that and having to navigate that on a daily basis. And Unfortunately, the second suicide attempt was a lot more serious and a lot more scary. And at that point, we, I I was lucky we were able to get into crisis care and I was able to work with a team that was able to respond quickly. Mm -hmm. And we were able to work with then new psych med providers. Once we got her on her ADHD medication, she's also on a mood stabilizer. I mean, in full um, disclosure here, but night and day, night and day.
0: That's good to hear.
1: It's ama- It was amazing. I mean, this is a child, as you know, when she ended her fifth grade year, you know, her grades were in the toilet, her t- attendance were in the, to- the toilet, she couldn't even get through a full day of school. You know, she did all the state testing, she was below grade average on everything except for like reading. She would be classified as poorly, poorly academic. Mm-hmm. And this year, now in middle school, she's thriving, she has A's and B's, and I mean, I, it just, it blows my mind when we treat, when we, we can get proper treatment in place for ADHD, it changes these kids' lives. She has confidence. She feels intelligent and smart. I mean, it's so amazing watching her flourish and, and grow.
0: That's awesome to hear. I'm glad. Thanks,
1: she Ritalin. Yeah, no,
0: I'm glad to hear she's turning a corner. That's, that's really encouraging, especially when you've had two suicide attempts and she's struggled as much as she has. In, including being hospitalized, that that's that's great news.
1: She wasn't hospitalized. We kept her out of the hospital, but we okay. uh, we were involved in crisis level care. So what okay. it was, it's a wrap approach.
0: Yep, I was misunderstanding the psych nurse story.
1: No, but when we we were in the hospital, we were in the uh, we were in the uh, medical okay. hospital because she had. Uh, but she
0: didn't have to stay there. She came home. Yeah, with you. it was okay. Okay.
1: She didn't have to stay there, and even that experience the social worker actually was recommending hospitalization mm-hmm. for her. But of course there's no open beds around. There's no, right. because she's so young too. So, you know, lots of difficulties there. They were like, you can stay in, here in the ER until we get her a bed. But the closest place that would have the most open bed availability was like six hours away. It, it just was a, it was a mess. And even her therapist and her therapy team, they wanted her to stay in the home. I was conflicted. I'm like, if I can't keep her safe, and I have everything locked up at this point, you know, then I have to make the best choice for my child's safety. And I think that that's one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make as a parent or thoughts that I've ever had to have as a parent is I can't keep my child safe to be alive. And I have to make decisions. You know, the ramifications could break up my family or put a huge rift in my family just to try to keep my child alive. Yeah. it's, it's, It's heartbreaking. And I know I'm not the only one.
0: Now, just contextually, What does your family look like? Like the family that you don't want to have break apart? Are we, who's in it?
1: So just, you know, myself and my two children. Okay. Mm -hmm. So if I, as a single mom, had to take my child and put her in residential six hours away, which again, unfortunately is very common in the United States. There's so many parents that have to make these decisions. There's no way I could have worked and taken care of my other child and been able to be active in the therapy process that I would, in a way I would have needed to be to get my child stabilized. I couldn't have on a Tuesday night gone and visited her. I couldn't be a part of her you know, family session. I would have been able to maybe see her on a Saturday and Sunday. So I mean, and that's, that's the thing is as a parent, at least in my journey, my changes in my engagements and my come to Jesus moments and my approaches were foundationally critical for how, how things got turned around. I had to parent and I do have to continue to parent her differently because of that diagnosis. And once I truly understood that and had to t- you know, get real honest with myself and make decisions, you know, what type of relationship do I want with my child? What is truly important? And I was able to really navigate myself and my parenting style with her. That's when things started to shift.
0: Can I throw some coaching in real quick?
1: Oh, absolutely. Go for it.
0: Have you discovered the offended versus angry Phenomenon?
1: Mm, uh, I don't know if I've ever heard it phrased that way, but do tell.
0: One of the things I work with my parents about, and it comes up in my parent coaching groups, it comes up when I do one on one stuff. A lot of parents who are parenting children that are challenging kids with ADHD, kids with mood disorders, those sorts of things. Yeah. It's really hard and it's really frustrating and it's exhausting and you get mad and it's just the way it is. And so I work with my parents around being offended as opposed to being angry. And it's, a, it's kind of a subtle distinction, but it's super amazing once you get it. The difference being angry is like, what, sit down, what are you doing? Like that sort of like judgmental, like raw thing, right? Need for control, essentially. Right, but you lose it. As soon as yep. you get angry, you lose control. You lose that power. But if you get offended, you maintain your power and control. And it's, it's a lot easier to explain... Visually, because the- <laughs> no, but, but I- this is a podcast, so there'll be no visuals. It's basically the like, really, really, like that, like, sort of confused and surprised facial expression. And you're just like, what are you doing? Like, yeah, and it's so potent because instead of the kids responding emotionally, they respond like confused and they have to figure it out. <laughs> It keeps stuff from escalating. Right, exactly. And it's way less energy for the parent. I've had a, a few parents now, which is an angle I didn't look at it from. I just looked at it as it's more effective. But I've had a few parents now say to me, like, I got offended instead of angry with my kids the past week or whatever. And it's, it's like a quarter of the energy that I usually use. Like I'm just not as exhausted as I was. And I was like, that's awesome. I didn't, I didn't even think about that side of it. I just thought about how it works better and it keeps things from getting worse.
1: Right? Exactly. Well, I think for me, uh, you know, one of the things that I've, I've noticed and I've had conversations with parents, parents that I've coached and, you know, just parents in general, you know, I think we just take things so personally, like it's some kind of inner reflection of who we are as people and parents being displayed externally through our children. And if we say or do the exact right things, you know, it's like that per- we have to have some kind of level of perfectionism around our parenting to be able to curb the hate and, and control the behavior of our children instead of just letting it go and being curious. And I think one of the most powerful things that I've learned recently and, and, and how to engage with my child is, you know, what is this behavior trying to tell me yep. and becoming curious. And now that's, you know, one of the, I think, most powerful tools I have on my belt is being curious About their behavior, instead of being angry or you know, or having some kind of just um, brust reaction to it, you know, just be like, "Well, why would she do this? Why is she saying this? What is this trying to tell me?" If her, you know, and I, I I had a podcast episode, and in that, the therapist said, "You know, if my child's behavior was a was a book, what would it be titled?" And I thought that was brilliant. For me, it's like, okay, well, you know, why is she doing this? I think she's doing this to be disrespectful, but that is not really the truth. And that really helped me step back out of myself. Because if I am personalizing her behavior, then it's about me. Right. And it shouldn't be about me. This is about her, her reactions, her emotions, her behavior is about her, my reactions, my behavior. That's about me. Yeah. And if I'm really trying to service and love my child, then I need to take myself out of that. I need, that's, it's not about me. The moment I make it about me, how could she do this to me? And I hear that a lot through the parents I coach. How could they do this to me? I'm so sick of this. Well, how do you think they feel too? They're probably sick of it too. So let's change it, right? And and then going from there.
0: And then there's the other component that you sort of skimmed a little bit. That is a factor here. And that's that so much parenting is done out of fear. Because we're afraid of the judgment of society, that vague, nebulous, unclear mm-hmm. thing. And we even feel that pressure at home when it's just us and our kids. <laughs> yes. And we interact with them in a way. Or, and usually it's not even us interacting them w- with them. It's they do something. Absolutely. Right? Like the kid is a little extra loud or a little extra messy or a little sassy or whatever. And we feel like that interaction now has somehow belittled us in the face of society. And we're afraid of that, even though society isn't even in our house and they don't know. Yeah. <laughs> and that that plays into. And when we're parenting from that position of fear, then often the strategy we take is to spread that fear to our kids. And that's where the anger comes from, right? Like if I can make my kid scared, then they'll do the thing that I want them to do, as opposed to if I can request it of them in a way that is effective.
1: Well, that's true, because I mean, but fear is a tactic used across the board in our society we that is a behavior that is modeled to us as parents and we see it in the news we see it in the media it's one of those things uh tony robbins talks about this and it's so true when he talks about the level of significance and he goes you know if i put a gun to your head all of a sudden i have become really significant on a scale of zero to ten i am now at a ten i have complete significance and i'm pretty sure you're going to do what i say when i say it right. so there's this association that we have with you know that that fear and violence and scare tactics and all that stuff to try to modify behavior. I, you know, I'm in my forties and when I was a child, you know, it was like, well, what do you want me to spank you with? And that was just a calming or a common parenting method. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've seen a pendulum shift from that. Uh, But the point being is that, you know, if that was what was modeled in your home, what that was, was uh, the fear of pain trying to, to, to modify the behavior. And so, now, you know, I think we're, we're in a space where a lot of us are trying to figure that out. Well, what is, what is effective?
0: Right. Using fear is just, a, it's, to my perspective, it's the least skilled parenting style.
1: It's certainly easy, right? And if it's easy, most of us do it.
0: <laughs> but it's also one that causes a lot of damage. It damages our kids emotionally. It damages our relationship with our kids.
1: And it damages our self-esteem as parents. Right, sure. Because then we feel we feel crappy about that. Like it didn't. I, it's that that old saying, right? This is gonna hurt me then more than it hurts you, right? Mm-hmm. There's a reason why that was common saying because we were doing things, you know, and we being the, the bigger we, doing things that. We're just, they were easy and they was grasping, it's just, I don't know what else to do. Right. And that's, that is a lack of skill. I don't know what else to do. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, building your own skills as a parent. So you can then help your, teach your children and you have to model that behavior. So then teach your children how to build those skills. I mean, ADHD, a lot of it is skill building. There's so much yeah. um, going into, to my time goes into how can I help her help herself? how can I teach her skills? So, you know, we create these new neuropathways. This, this becomes her muscle memory. So she goes to her skills instead of like a maladaptive behavior that has worked and been really effective, but isn't what is going to be best in the long run. You know, it's kind of one of those things. It's, right. it's such a carousel of hell. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> it's like, but it, you know, at the end of the day, we all love our kids and we're all trying to do the best we can. And I think our kids are also trying to do the best that they can. Absolutely. And that was a shift. And for me, it was, you know, why is she not taking out the garbage? I told her three times, you know, I'm standing right in front of her face. Why is she not listening to me? Why is she, ne- why is she never do anything that I say? Why doesn't she do her chores? Why does she do her, I'm telling her, tell telling, you know, bark, 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 bark. When I started really doing the research on ADHD, and I'm definitely somebody that uh, I do a I do- ridiculous amount of research because I, I like to nerd out that way. <laughs> I find it all fascinating. But really, really, you know, it, uh, the AHA is like, she's not doing this to be disrespectful or because she's a bad kid. And I think ADHD children in particular get the bad kid label yep. because of the hyperactivity and because of the lack of focus.
0: And it's another, it's another least skilled or lesser skilled approach, right? Oh, they're just unmotivated. They're just lazy. They're just being defiant.
1: They're not listening, yeah.
0: If I can just slap that stuff on the kid's behavior, then I don't have to look more carefully at what's going on and I don't have to think more deeply about it. I only have to be so skilled. And anybody can say, that kid's just being defiant. That kid just isn't motivated. That kid just doesn't care. In my workshops, I often fake an asthma attack and then I pull an inhaler out and I do my inhaler and then I apologize to everyone Because I'm being too lazy and unmotivated to bother breathing. (laughs) And that's how everyone responds. Oh, my God. (laughs) And then I immediately transition from that about how no one's going to blame me for having an asthma attack and having trouble breathing. But why do we blame kids with ADHD for struggling to take out the trash, for failing to do their homework, for having trouble managing their emotions when it's the same thing? It's just neurological as opposed to cardiovascular.
1: Well, that's so funny. Because, I mean, in, mm-hmm. for example, it was about three weeks ago we were at the grocery store, and this child, um, uh, it looked to me autism, there were some downs, lots of stuff going on, Having a complete emotional meltdown. The child was about 12, so it's a you know, bigger child was uh, sitting on the floor, you, know, rocking, screaming, like doing this growling, yodelling sound. I mean, obviously, having, having a crisis moment, a meltdown moment you know i had so much the mom is just standing there she, you know you could tell that she's done this before but she was looking around for the judgment mm-hmm. and what i saw what was beautiful there was about four people that came around and kind of formed a privacy circle around this child that's great i still like i i'm tearing up like even thinking about it because i was like thank god the more conversations we have like this When a child is acting out in a public place, and and we can accept those moments, then we can handle them with grace. And I think that that's more inspiring. And I hope, my hope is that that mom walked away saying, okay, now I'm not going to be scared to go out to the grocery store with my kid anymore. Or maybe I could do other public outings, you know? And that's why I feel when my child is being very hyperactive and she is and that's a lot it's a lot for other children and you know that's the social emotional piece is that there's a lot of other kids that can't when she's in the throes of a hyperactivity it is very hard to be around her she is bing bing boom 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 talking a you know mile a minute can't sit down running around physically it's it's like somebody winds winds her up and she goes and there's real social emotional ramifications in her peer group with that and it makes me so sad because she's such a sweet girl and she just wants to have friends and be accepted. Yeah. But she knows she's different. And I think as we have more conversations and, 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 and destigmatize things and demystify things, we get to then, as adults, learn how to handle these situations so then we can teach our children about neurodiversity. So they can be more accepting and loving and kind if they see a child whose behavior, you know, like, oh, that kid's a little weird,
0: you know? Yeah, because sometimes, and sort of understandable for kids because they are trying to figure some stuff out, right? But but they see a kid who's behaving in a way that's not normal and they're like, hey, that kid is unnormal. So that, I don't know what to do with that.
1: Hence the title of my podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's like I know how to transition. Um, <laughs> and so, cause you're working on that, right? Like that's part of the purpose of the, of the unnormal podcast is to help normalize
1: Correct.
0: this neurodiversity, right? Like ADHD Essentials aims pretty much at the heart of ADHD. We branch out a little bit here and there, but our mission is ADHD. Yours is more broad than that.
1: Well, our mission is really simple and it's exposure, education, and empowerment and uh, in, in the mental health and realm spectrum period. So, um. Really, for me, in working with others, there was, you know, reoccurring themes, stigma being a huge thing, and that is really the exposure piece. Getting people to understand that if they expose themselves to neurodiversity and neuroatypicality, and expose their own limiting beliefs around that as well, and what misinformation that they have accepted as quote-unquote normal, and understanding that they are trying to seek a level of normalcy that doesn't exist there's no such thing as normal, right. so we expose that. And so for me on my podcast, I, it's myself, and I have a, a, usually a therapist or somebody um, with a specialty come on and we talk about specific topics. So every week we have a different topic. Um, and that, you know, we've talked about everything from domestic violence, to sexual assault, to ADHD, to um, bipolar. So I mean, there's been a huge gamut and will continue to be a huge gamut of topics But then we go into that education piece, which is what the podcast really serves to do is because I bring on, you know, um, professionals, it gives them knowledge and knowledge is power. I can make decisions, different decisions is by no, it's no longer, I, I no longer operate out of ignorance. So I wanted to educate people and get them proper access to proper education. Again, when we talk about misinformation in the media, right, we then we need avenues to proper education. And then the empowerment. And that's really especially for anybody who's in a caregiver capacity. So, you know, a spouse, a parent, grandparent, whatever, dealing with somebody in their life that has a mental health or behavioral health challenge. To be able to empower them to be able to interact and create stronger relationships. And I do a lot, most of my work is done with parents just because I have what's called a lived experience or I provide like a peer support model for parents. You know, it shows them. That they can have a different relationship with their children. And what is happening today in the now doesn't have to be what happens in the future. So, we have to empower you to be able to gain confidence and create clear strategies that are gonna be good for you and your family so you can walk forward. So, that's really the mission of being unnormal. And, you know, it started out as uh, just online support. And then we have the podcast. Now we're gonna be doing webinars and retreats. We have live events. We, We did our first live show. Um, last month. So it's really um, turning into this amazing movement.
0: That's awesome. So just being mindful of time, do you have any ending essentials that you'd like to share with our audience?
1: Getting the information out there that ADHD is not what you see on the TV. And that's, that's the important thing. And if you have a feeling in your gut as a parent, um, if you're listening to this and you're like, I wonder, or I am questioning, or I am curious, trust it.
0: And if you're listening to this, you probably are having that feeling in your gut because why else would you be listening to this True. unless you're trapped in a car with someone who has ADHD <laughs> and they're like, we're going to listen to this podcast too bad for you.
1: Exactly. Right. So I mean, exactly. But no, that's, that's what I would say is you know, any time throughout your child's treatment plan, if something doesn't sit quite right, trust your gut.
0: And that includes not just ADHD too. I should, cause I biased that a little bit with my joke, but but if your kid is diagnosed with ADHD but you're feeling like I don't know, I'm not sure that that's the right diagnosis. Maybe it's bipolar disorder. You know, maybe it's autism.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Like I said earlier there are, you know so many co-occurrences or maybe it's both.
0: Right, or maybe it's both.
1: You know, and anxiety, I mean, usually children with ADHD has also have Oh yeah. you know generalized anxiety disorder. So there's there's so many different things, but
0: definitively, if you have ADHD, you also are affected by anxiety. It may or may not be diagnosable. <laughs> But if you've got ADHD, you are affected by anxiety. It's just the way it goes. Those two things do not get separated.
1: Yeah, unfortunately, they're, they, they tend to be besties, yeah.
0: <laughs> right, yeah, if you have anxiety, you might not have ADHD. Anxiety does not equal ADHD, but ADHD does equal anxiety.
1: So. <laughs> there you go. Thank you so much for having me on your show. I, I really appreciate it. It's been, been fun. It's been a fun conversation.
0: Hey, you're still here. Nice. Thanks for staying focused all the way through. If you have any thoughts or questions about today's episode, feel free to email me at brendan at And don't forget to check out the website, ADHDessentials.com. And visit our Facebook community. I'm looking forward to talking to you again next week. In the meantime, keep focusing on improvement over perfection. better is all you need.